You're listening to the New City Church Sermon Podcast. We exist to love God, to love our neighbors, and to make known the good news of Jesus Christ. To this end, we seek to cultivate a spirit-filled, gospel-centered community that multiplies disciples of Jesus and churches for the glory of God, the joy of all people, and the good of the city. If you'd like to learn more about New City, including service times, discipleship pathways, and opportunities to serve and fellowship with us, please visit us online at newcitykc.org. If you have a Bible, turn me to Jeremiah 29. Uh, We're going to be looking at uh, Jeremiah 29, verse 11, as our coffee mug verse this morning. And we've been walking through these very familiar verses in Scripture. And and the point of of this series is not to be self-righteous or to be arrogant about, uh, you know, understanding these verses better than anyone else. But it's the familiarity that can kind of breed contempt. Sometimes we hear these things thrown at us, these promises, but we kind of miss the weight and the beauty of these uh, verses. That, that have come to us. And, and Jeremiah 29, verse 11 is one of those great, what I call a graduation verse, right? You've been to the graduation and somebody's going to quote Jeremiah 29, 11, you know, the, I have plans for you to prosper and a hope and a future. And everyone goes, oh, and cries. And, you know, the Michael W. Smith friend song plays and, and all those things. And uh, if you know that uh, 80s, 90s reference. But um, but we want to look at these, these verses not to diminish them or, or not to uh, uh, say, hey, we get it, but really to say, let's Let's see the beauty. Let's see the context. Let's see what, what's really going on because I think they're even much better than we even give them credit for. So I'm going to read uh, Jeremiah 29, just the first um, 14 verses or so, and we'll jump in uh, together. So Jeremiah 29, verse 29, should be on the screen or a Bible around you or on some cool device that you're reading uh, using. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exile. And to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elisa, the son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, the son of Hekeliah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It said, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. Here's the graduation verse. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. And this is the word of God for us. 
this morning. So we've been looking at these coffee cup uh, verses, and, and a few weeks ago we started the Romans uh, 8.28, you know, this great promise that, that God is working out all things for the good of those who love them, but it's in the context of a world that is aching. It's in the context of a world that is broken by sin and evil. So it's within that context, God is working good. God is working redemption in our lives, but also in the grand scheme of things in the whole cosmos. We've looked at verses like Philippians chapter 4, verse 13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Matt did a great job handling that Tim Tebow text, right? As we run out of the tunnel with our shirt on and our eye black on, I can do all things. I can tackle every uh, foe. I can throw a touchdown. I can lift 400 pounds through Christ who strengthens me. But in the context of Philippians 4 is Paul talking about contentment. And the reason he can do is because he's learning what it means to be content. He's learning what it means to have a lot or have nothing. That no matter where we find ourselves in life, we can say, hey, I know what it's like to have a lot. I know what it's like to have nothing. But I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And then last week, we looked at another familiar text, James chapter 1. Consider it joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds. How do we find joy in trial? How do we find joy in challenge? Well, part of it is understanding that it's not rejoicing in, it's not joy in the trial itself, it's what comes out on the other side of the trial. A more robust, beautiful, enduring faith. As Paul would say even in Romans, a a, a deeper faith of character and hope. More humility, more compassion, more love. It's not the trial that we celebrate, but it's what God's doing and working through the trials and troubles and challenges that we have in life that we can rejoice because we see a bigger picture going on that God is not wasting this trial or challenge or trouble. And so this morning, our graduation text, Jeremiah 29 verse 11 is a beautiful text. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and peace and not for evil to give you a future and a hope is a fantastic promise from God. But we need to read it in its context. We need to see what's going on around it to really understand its weight and its beauty. Because as this text just pulled out of context, just means like, hey, just follow God. Everything will go well. You just experience prosperity. Everything you touch will turn to gold. But I don't think that's what Jeremiah had in mind thousands of years ago when he was speaking to his people. It's not this cliched promise, if I follow Jesus, my life will go well and everything will turn up roses. Because if you've been following Jesus for any amount of time, no one wants to tell you that maybe two, three, four, five, 10, 12 years, things can go off the rails. Suffering can happen, loss can happen, doubt can happen, fear can happen, right? Nobody wants, everyone loves the testimony of the person who, you know, comes to Christ and stopped doing drugs and, you know, stopped doing heroin and poking in their eyeballs. And now it's like, hey, I haven't sinned in seven years, but nobody wants to talk about seven, eight, nine years. And now the battle, the struggle of walking with Christ, things don't always go well. So this isn't just a follow Jesus so we get all that we, we want, but what does Jeremiah mean here? Does, what does this promise of a bright future, what does this promise of hope mean for them, and what does it mean for us today? And I think it's something deeper and, and better when we understand it in its fuller uh, context. So first this morning, I, I want you to consider this, is that in the context of this, of Jeremiah 29, is that what God is doing is he's giving his people a new identity. So if we zoom out and we look at this context, he's giving God's people a new identity. And it's a very specific identity. It's a metaphor that Jer- Jeremiah uses and other parts of scripture use. It's this image of exile. And maybe you caught it in verse 4. 
Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. And if you jump down to verse 7, but seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. And if you jump down to verse 14, I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. So what God is doing is he is the one sending his people, sending Israel into exile. He's sending them into exile for a very particular reason, because of their own sin, right? So when we read this text in, in, in context, it's a, it, they've sinned, they've worshiped other gods. And actually, if you jump back one chapter, um, actually a couple chapters in verse chapter 25, verse uh, Four, you get a little bit more context of what is going on. He says in 25.4, you have neither listened nor inclined your ears to hear, although the Lord persistently sent to you all his servants, the prophets, saying, turn now every one of you from his evil way and evil deeds and dwell upon the land that the Lord has given to you and your fathers from of old and forever. Do not go after other gods to serve and worship them or provoke me to anger with the work of your hands. Then I will do, to you, do you no harm. Yet you have not listened to me declares the Lord, that you might provoke me to anger with the work of your hands to your own harm. Israel's being sent by God into exile because of their own sin for worshiping other gods, even though God graciously warned them. Now, kids, how many of you have been put in a timeout? Imagine your parents saying, I want you to take a 70-year timeout. All right? So you think your timeouts are bad. Um, I've thought of it just because I was like, I'm just trying to be biblical, kids. Like, it's 70 years. I'm sorry. This is how it's going to go, right? But this is what's happening in the life of Israel is that they are, he is sending them, moving them into exile because of their own sin, because he has a bigger purpose at work here. He has a bigger plan at work here. God is shaping his people to be an exile, exilic people because that's where he does his best work. Isn't it interesting when you think about the wilderness journeys of Israel, when they're sent in the wilderness in Egypt, right? Here's a fun, fun fact. Israel's put into the wilderness for 40 years. You know how long it would take for them to go from the wilderness to the promised land? Any guesses? 11 days, Right? Just an 11-day journey. We could be home free, right? But here is Israel wandering in the desert for 40 years. Why? Because God is shaping them and forming them to be an exilic wilderness people that where your life is shaped and, and the crucible in which it's formed is often through pain and struggle and loss. When we think of Jesus in his early public ministry, where is he formed? Where is he tempted by Satan in the wilderness? Well, in the wilderness, I just gave it to you. Um, <laughs> It's in the wilderness where the people that God wants us to be. Where was David shaped as he runs from Saul and caves in the wilderness? In the wilderness is where God does much of his best work. We are called to be an exilic people, a people that have, have moved away from their home, from a place of security and comfort where they could worship their God, where they could have connection and community and life, and they're moving to Babylon, which doesn't worship the same gods that they worship, doesn't have the same values they have. You can imagine what they're experiencing. Exile is about leaving our home, leaving our country. You think about the people in Ukraine, that millions of people that have been by no fault of their own, moved out. Hey, you're leaving tomorrow to go live all over the world 
essentially. Think of the people in Africa and Darfur who have been moved from their homeland. You don't have a choice here. You're leaving now. In many ways, that's what it means to follow Christ is that we've been called to be this exilic people that no matter where we are, we should not be totally comfortable with the surrounding culture because God is redeeming us from within the culture, giving us different desires, different hopes, different motivations, different values. And that's exactly what God was up to in Israel. The same thing he's up to with us is I'm going to put you in this place where it's unfamiliar and it's difficult and it's challenging, but through that, I'm going to shape you and mold you into the people that I desire you to be, an exilic people. The apostle Peter, um, one of the early apostles, we know Peter, uh, the inner circle of Jesus in 1 Peter chapter 2 speaks this way in the New Testament as well. In 1 Peter chapter uh, 2, if I can find it. Notice what he says, but you are a chosen race, verse 9, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Here's verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This has always been God's plan. I'm going to move you and put you in places and cultures and generations and times where it's not going to be comfortable. People aren't going to worship the God that you worship. They're not going to value the things that you value. They're not going to believe what you believe. But here's what I want you to do. I want you to be a light, a city on a hill to them. I want you to live distinctively. I want you to seek different things so that by your good deeds, by them seeing what it's like to follow God and know God and and worship God, they will glorify God. They will get a little small glimpse of what your God is like. But I'm going to put you right in the mess right in the stuff, right in the pain, right in the struggle. You're going to have to go through a wilderness. You're going to have to go through exile to become all that I've created you. And and this new identity is what God is after for his people. He's not happy with them. It's a 70-year timeout. It's a long time. And he, he wants them to see the bigger picture that while you're there, there's more going on. And I think for us, Maybe our obsession with mobility, <laughs> moving around, never content, always moving from, you know, one job to the next, one experience to the next, one relationship uh, to, the, to the next, um, which wasn't really a thing 100 years ago. We didn't have those options. But I think sometimes in our mobility, this is this deep longing of ache for home. It's this deep longing ache for what we really believe should be. And so we always think, well, the grass is always greener over here. If I have this job or have this person or have this amount of money or this, you know, uh, experience or this achievement that somehow I'll be better. But the problem is you, when you leave this place and you go somewhere else, you take your same heart and your same soul and your same problems. But I think it's a deeper ache that all of us have for Eden, that we've all been banished from the garden because of our sin. We've all been pushed out. We've all been separated from God because of our sin. We've all been separated from relationship because of our sin. And there's this deep longing in all of us to get back home. But the beauty of being a follower of Jesus is home is wherever you are because God is always with you. It doesn't matter where you live. It doesn't matter what country you're part of. It doesn't matter if things are going well or not going well. It doesn't matter if you live in the inner city or live in the suburbs. It doesn't matter if you live in Africa or Timbuktu. 
God is always with his people wherever they are. And so God gives this great promise of a future hope, a future peace to his people. But he says in the midst of it, it's going to require exile. It's going to require pain. It's going to require struggle. It's going to be required for you to be in times and places and situations that aren't comfortable, to be with people that aren't like you, that don't think like you, that don't believe what you believe. And yet, as you worship me, as you love me, as you serve me, as you live for me, the nations will be drawn in. That's what Psalm 67 says, that the nations will be glad. The nations will find joy. As you find your joy in God, they will find their joy as well, wherever you are placed. And that's why Jeremiah can say, I do have plans for you, a hope in the future. I I do have plans, but it's going to take some wilderness. It's going to take some exile. It's going to take some fire. It's going to take some pain and struggle. So how does this come about then? Okay, that's nice. But, but how does it come about? And, and this is, I think, really helpful practical teaching from Jeremiah is that he gives us this warning. He says there's actually two options that you can live in exile. Like you can live in the place God has called you. You have two options here. One is a poor option and one is a much better option. We'll keep it simple, right? He says, here's the poor option. Here's how you can live in exile if you choose. And notice in verse 8 and 9, here's what he says to the prophets. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. So Jeremiah is saying there's these prophets that have come in your community and now are saying false things that aren't true. What are they specifically saying? If you jump back one chapter, chapter 28, verse 2, there's this guy, could be a gal, I'm not sure, but Hananiah. Hananiah's prophecy in chapter 22, verse 2, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I have broken the yoke of the king of Babylon. Within two years, I will bring back to this place the vessels of the Lord's house, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, took away from this place and carried to Babylon. I will also bring back to this place Jeconiah, the son of uh, Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and also the exiles from Judah, who went to Babylon, declares the Lord, for I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. So here's what the false prophets are saying. Hey, in two years, everything's going to be great, Right? You're going to go to exile. You're going to go to Babylon, right? Nebuchadnezzar will rule you for a little while, but then it's all done. Everything will be fine, right? But God's like, no, 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 no. I'm putting them on a 70-year timeout. It's not a two-year timeout. It's a 70-year timeout. They need to think about what they did, right? And they need 70 years to think about it, right? And isn't this interesting about false prophecy? Why is it always more comfort, right? It's always like it's not going to, it's going to be fine. Everything's going to be fine. You're going to be blessed. You don't have to go through anything, right? I love to just hear a prophecy that's like it's going to be an absolute train wreck. Your life's going to fall apart. You're going to suffer in ways that you can't even ministry. And that doesn't build a big church. That's why no one says it that way right? And you're going to have money just falling, raining down from heaven. You're never going to get sick, right? You're never going to get cancer, never going to lose any loved ones. You don't hear many prophecies about that. But here's this false prophet saying, in two years, just like a Band-Aid, just rip it off. And God says, no, 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 no. Don't listen to them. I have a bigger plan and purpose. It's going to require exile. It's going to require 70 years, to form you and fashion you into the people that I desire you to be. Yeah, it'd be easy, just a couple years, rip off the Band-Aid, go on your way, right? But that's not what God had in mind. And I think there's something underneath that too. I think what's being addressed here, and we could use modern language, is I think tribalism's being addressed here as well. 
Is this to assume that our people, whoever our people is, God's people, Christians, or whatever community we could fill in the blank, is that assume that our people should never suffer? Like we should never go through anything, right? Because we're the chosen ones, right? Everything should be in our favor, right? We're God's people. So, so everything should go in our favor. But we don't consider the communities around us. We don't consider that there are going to be times where we fall on our faces, where we suffer, where we go through trial, where we go through challenge. But often the dominant culture, often the false teachers, often the prophets are going to say things like, it shouldn't be that bad. And if it's bad, then you're probably doing something wrong, right? How often do you hear that? Well, obviously, <laughs> it's all your fault. You're sinning, you're doing something wrong, right? So, so there's tribalism can happen where we start to be, forget about our neighbors. We start to forget about the city in which we've been called to. We start forgetting about even our own family, right? It just, we just kind of lock down and we just kind of look at our navels and go, no, 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 no. Forget all those people, all those bad, wicked people. We're going to kind of get everybody in here and just look at ourselves and worry about ourselves. And when tribalism happens, it's really difficult to see anyone other than your own self or your own community. But I think there's also another reality to this is assimilation. It's the other side of that. It's that we know historically that, that Babylon um, knew how to conquer a nation really well, um, getting them to assimilate into their ways, into their customs, into their Beliefs, So they'd, they'd give them jobs and give them homes and give them opportunity. Uh, and there's a reason for that. As long as they, you know, towed the party line, as long as they didn't make a ruckus, everything would be fine. But here's why what happens is if you don't do that, guess what? If Babylon just drove out Israel or whatever nation they're trying to conquer, guess what? They're going to come back mad, right, and want to fight back. Or if you control them and enslave them, guess what? Insurrections are going to ha happen from within, so the, the goal here is like give them enough, give them enough opportunity, give them enough um, money, give them enough job, give them enough wealth, whatever it is, so they'll stay happy and do what we tell them to do. That's just assimilation, right? It's not questioning the dominant culture. It's not questioning what they believe or what they think. So there's the danger of tribalism where we only think of our own. There's a danger of assimilation where we just become like the dominant culture, so what is our option then as exiles? If that's a poor way of engaging, being exiles in our city, what's a better option? How do we live in a world that is often hostile to the gospel? If not tribalism, if not assimilation, is there a better way? Well, I think there is. There's a better, way, better option for living as exiles. Notice what Jeremiah says here. And I just call this the, ready? The ordinary radical approach. All right? Thank you, Marcus. Um, I love Marcus's laugh. Um, ready? This is radical. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. It's not what I was expecting. Seems very ordinary. Like, like here's, here's what I, I want you to do. I, I want you to build houses. I want you to plant gardens and eat their produce. In other words, I want you to put down roots because it takes a long time to build a house. It takes a long time to build a garden, doesn't it? 
unless you have some miracle grow situation going, or it's like, actually, no, not for me. I'm just tomatoes this big, right? But, but it takes a long time, right? If you're living in an agricultural uh, climate like the, people, the ancient people, right? It would take years and years to have a healthy, thriving crop. In other words, get comfortable where you're at. Think long-term where you're at. Build houses. Get married if possible. Have babies if possible. Adopt babies if, if needed. Steal babies. No, don't steal them. But... And as the city flourishes, you will flourish. As you experience welfare, peace, shalom, the word he used here in verse 7, so will your community. Radical, ordinary people put roots down. Think long term. Yeah, people aren't going to believe what you believe. People aren't going to like you at times. But don't bail every time things get hard. Don't think the grass is always greener on the other side. You're going to just have different problems, right? Right? I mean, how many times have we, you know, thought, oh, this place, right? We were just, I was just joking with Matt. They, they had an opportunity to go to Colorado. And if you've ever been to Colorado, you're just like, well, I'm from Missouri. And there's no humidity here. So it's probably God's calling to have us live here. Um, and you can go up in the mountains and it's 50 degrees, like, all the time. So why would we not live here where there's no bugs? All right? But I bring my same soul, I bring my same junk, I bring my same problems with me, even if I'm on a mountain somewhere, right? Maybe with less humidity. But the reality is, is that that's what happens, right? We just think wherever we go, right, you're going to have the same problems. So put down roots, plant gardens, build houses, build families. Think long-term, think long game. And then pray for the city, serve the city. As it flourishes, you will flourish, and what's beautiful is that this is actually the way we fight tribalism and assimilation. Is that if you're seeking the peace and welfare and you're praying for your city, you're not going to assimilate to it. You're not going to become tribal in it, right? You're going to want God's kingdom to break into our city, into the lives of our coworkers, into the lives of, of our neighborhood, wherever we, we find ourselves. We're not going to assimilate that. We're going to pray that God's spirit would come, God's blessing would come, God would move among us, Right? And we're not going to become tribal because guess what? We're thinking about our city. We're thinking about our neighbors. We're thinking about someone other than our own navels, right? Like, how can I be a blessing to my city today? How can I bless them? How can I pray for them today? Maybe it starts with just your neighbor next door, your coworker in your cubicle, Larry. Everyone has a Larry in their office. Larry's annoying. Pray for him, right? Or something about when people annoy you, when you pray for them, all of a sudden God starts changing your heart towards them, right? It's like, yeah, I know Larry steals my stapler every day, but I, you know, I've just been called to love him, right? He just seems like a loner. Maybe I should have asked him to coffee or lunch, right? I know we have a lot of engineers. I know at Burns and Mac and other places, right? I see you guys walking around, you know, the, the, the block, right, trying to get some exercise. Maybe you invite Larry along or Mary, you know? Mary can have problems too. But it fights against this tribalism and this assimilation, there's a really um, helpful book I read many years ago, um, St. Augustine, or Augustine, depends how pretentious you are, but um, <laughs> he wrote a book called um, The City of God. I don't know if you've ever talked about this, but in, in uh, Augustine's uh, book, The City of God, he, he describes the Bible as God's plan for building a heavenly city on earth and humanity building an earthly city opposed to God. So there's these like two, he describes it as these like two warring cities within a city, 
right? Those that want to see God and honor God and love God and those that, that don't. And, and both these cities have to learn how to kind of live within uh, the confines of each other and, and figure out what that looks like. But he describes what they're like. And he says, the city of man are people who seek the earthly city and are filled with pride because they're trying to make a name for themselves. So the only thing that matters is my name, right? I'm the... I'm the one. I'm the one that needs the promotion. I'm the one that, that should have their names on billboards and on, you know, websites and, and, and have the, be the person that, that is everything, right? It's all about me and my happiness and my success. But the city of God has a different priority. It desires to make the name of the Lord, the name of Jesus great. How do I do that in my actions and how I work and how I speak and how I spend my money and how I forgive and how I, I love. I'm not living for my own fame. I'm not living for my glory, but I'm living for the glory of God. I'm motivated to worship him and know him for the good of others. The, the city of man is marked by exhaustion, not peace. You know why? Because it's working itself to death to make a name for themselves. There's no end to it, right? But the beauty of the, the city of God is that it's marked by grace, Right? We can rest in the fact that whether we're doing well or whether we're falling on our faces, grace sustains us, right? It's an exhausting game to make the, your life about you, right? The holy trinity of me, myself, and I, when it's just we're consumed with me and what I'm doing and what I'm building and my success, right? It's exhausting. And when it gets that exhausting, guess what? You can't see anyone else. But our lives are marked by the grace of God, that, that God loves me regardless if I'm making a million dollars or I'm barely scraping by. Whether I have my dream job or I'm working a menial job that I just can't stand and I can't barely get up in the morning. Whether I have a lot of money in the bank or none. Whether the kids are healthy or sick. Wherever I find myself, the, the city of God would say our lives are marked by grace. And if they're marked by grace, guess what? Then we're able to love and serve our city because we have everything already, right? Everything's been given to us. So our lives are just a, an, a, an act of, as we talked about this morning, of, of gratitude, a response of service. Because I have all I need in Christ, right? It's not about me anymore. That all my life is to how do I give myself away to the good of others because everything I need is ultimately found in Jesus. I pray we sing that song that he is better. Help, help, us, help us believe. I, I just pray that we would say in our lives that when Jesus is better, it will give us the motivation and the ability to live like this in our city. Because we have everything that we need in Christ. We'd have new ways of looking at marriage and relationships and singleness and politics and recreation and time and money and vocation and career under the banner and the power of the grace of God. There's a better way that we can live out our lives in the cities in which God has called us. But it first starts with us having peace with God so that we can seek the peace and the welfare and the flourishing of others. Later, uh, Augustine, St. Augustine said, we have dual citizenships. We're citizens of this country and citizens of the kingdom of God, which means we should be the best citizens. Why? Because it's not our final home. This isn't it. That's why we should be the best citizens, right? Like we should say like America's it. It's not it, right? Do you realize it's like a baby has like diapers on, right? When you look at like the, the, the countries around the world, they're the Roman Empire. Guess what? Not here anymore, <laughs> 
Right? You think America's going to be here forever? It's not. So don't put all your hope in that. Don't put your hope in politics. Right? It's going away just like everything else. So the, 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 the thing here that he's trying to say is I'm forming you and fashioning you as my exile people because your home isn't here. So you should, can be the best citizens no matter what's going on in our city, no matter what's going on in our neighborhoods, right? Because this is just part of the journey in which God has called us. And as we seek this peace and this welfare of our own city, it's not just this, it's not just an inner feeling, it's not just lack of conflict, but it's an entire wholeness and completeness. The, the, the Hebrew word here is spiritually, it means we're calling people to repent and follow Jesus. It means we're calling people to re- discipleship in local churches. Socially, where relationships are broken between races and classes, we work for reconciliation. Economically, when things are broken down, how can we help? How can we serve? How can we offer a helping hand? Culturally, arts, business, government, education, family, seeking fresh ways to, as we're motivated by this peace, as we're motivated by the gospel, to, to be salt and light in every sphere of culture. And the only way in which we do it is as we find more peace in God himself. And you know what, church? Historically, the church has actually done a really job, good job living like this. If you go study the early church in 2,000 years ago as the church is forming in, in Acts, is that the early church was the, the hospice care. They were the social workers. They were the pastors to the city when there's plagues are breaking out and famines are breaking out and, and people didn't have money. They were helping and they, they weren't this like powerful community. They're just ragtag ordinary disciples of Jesus saying, how can we help? How can we pray? How can we serve, right? I mean, there's, there's pagan historians that talk about Christians that, that, that would move into cities and move into hard places while everyone else, the non-Christians, moved out. Not getting our hands dirty. Let them die, right? But what if Christians actually began to, to live like that again in, in new and fresh ways in our modern context? We don't run away from the problems. We don't run away from the pain and the suffering knowing that God has a bigger plan at stake here, that he's working redemption right in the mess and he's working redemption right in our mess and he's forming us to be an exilic people and that that as we seek and pray for the welfare of the city, we'll experience more of that same welfare. So church, if you want hope in a future and you want to experience true prosperity, it, it starts by embracing your identity as an exilic people. To know that God is forming you and fashioning you in the pain, in the struggle, among a communities of people that maybe don't believe what you believe and value what you value. God is also fashioning you and working through you that as you begin to seek the welfare, as you begin to pray for, as you begin to bless our own place, we begin to experience a little more of God's peace because it's not about us anymore. Like, like, I think this is why Jesus, and I tend to listen to Jesus, he just seems like a really wise teacher of all the people to listen to. I know people on you know, Facebook and Instagram are really smart and wise, but I'm gonna go with Jesus. What did he say? It's more blessed to give than to receive. I've never seen anyone myself included, that lives their lives, how can I give more than I receive, ever complain about that? It's always the best way to live. And I'm not saying it's easy. Don't hear that. Oh, it takes the spirit, it takes miracles, it takes grace, right? I'm as selfish as anybody, right? 
I don't preach this saying, like, you guys need to get your stuff together. Seriously. I mean, I'm killing it, nailing it. Um, I can be just as selfish as anyone else. Believe me. You've hung around me. You know. Right? But, but, but we know that posture of, of how do I give myself away to my kids? How do I give myself away to my neighbors and my, my friends, my coworkers, my church, family? It's the best way to live. It's weird how you experience God's pleasure and peace when we live like that. When we don't make it about ourselves. Like, isn't that that weird thing when you, you, you do something that you, you're kind of not too excited about? You're just like, oh, these people, I need some help. I, I better should probably go help them and do it. And you, and you feel very, like, kind of conflicted. And then this, like, huge sense of, like, joy comes. And then you feel like, no, 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 bad feelings. I'm not supposed to feel joy. This is not supposed to, right? This is supposed to be sacrificial, right? This is supposed to be, like, this shouldn't, shouldn't come upon me, but it happens all the time, right? Okay, none of you? Okay, one of you. I don't know what you speak of. But the way we experience what this promise that Jeremiah is talking about, the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope, starts with how do we seek the welfare and the peace of others? How do we put down roots? Let me close with this. What will motivate us to live long-term like this as God's exile people. As we've mentioned, God has this plan of restoration for his people. In Israel, hey, you're going to have this 70-year time out, but I have this plan of redemption. I'm going to lead you to the promised land. It's going to require some trials, some suffering, some challenges, living among a people that aren't like you. But we know New Testament, we know historically that through Jesus... Jesus comes to us, not to Babylon, but to Jerusalem, and he's cast out to die. Isn't that interesting? That where this is taking place, Jerusalem, Israel has been moved from Jerusalem to Babylon, and Jesus comes 2,000 <clears throat> years later, and he's placed in Jerusalem. But guess what? He's moved out of the city, the scriptures say, to die a horrific death for our sins and the sins of the world. He's moved from his center, his place. He comes as a Jewish man, full of, understands Jewish culture, understands the Old Testament. This is his people. And where is he cast out to die? Outside the city, outside in Babylon. That's what Hebrews 13 says. And that's actually where we got the name of our church, is <clears throat> I'm not that creative. And I thought of this name many years ago because I just really settled on me. In Hebrews chapter 13, at the end of Hebrews Verse 12, so Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For there, here, we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, let us continually offer up sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices and pleasing to God. The ways you're motivated to live like this is to look at Jesus, the one who suffered outside the city, the one who was sent to his own Babylon to be punished for our sins and the sins of the world to be ostracized, to be removed, right? He had to go have his own little time out from God where God turned his back on him, where the, the, where the wrath of God fell on him so that it wouldn't have to fall on us. He had to go live among a people that weren't like him, that didn't worship the God that he worshiped. He came into human history to a people that had wanted nothing to do with him, that even his own people rejected him. He moved into his own Babylon. And Jesus moved into his own Babylon so that we could come into a new city, a city within a city. That's what we're called to as a church. 
New City Church, the reason we have that name is to say there's a city within a city. We live in Kansas City, and it's a great city, and there's, there's much to, to praise God for here. We're not anti-city. We're not like, you know, we hate it here. We're not saying that at all. But we're saying this isn't it, though. This isn't the city of all cities. We live in a city within a city offering hope to people beyond the city because people that you interact with every single day are exhausted because they're trying to put all their hope in this city, in this time, in this place. And it just never seems to deliver on its promises. So we go to the one who was crucified and broken outside the city and we move back into our own cities and our own contexts and our own towns and our own neighborhoods full of hope, knowing that this isn't it. God has bigger plans for this place, that he's redeeming it and restoring it for his glory and our, our good. I think, church, when we see people sinning and hurting each other, just like we do, we need to remember that we used to be in that state. It's so easy to be self-righteous and just like, look at these people. But you remember 1 Peter chapter 2? You used to be a people with no mercy. You used to be in darkness, but now you're in light. How easy is it to forget you? that's who you used to be? So when we see all people making a mess of things, right, we're just like, oh, look at them. I told you. It's like we act, you know, expect non-Christians to live like Christians, and then we're like offended when they don't, right? Is that too honest? Right? How dare they? It's like, what? What? They don't follow Jesus. So what? I don't understand what we're saying. It's like we forget who we were. We forget where we've come from. We forget this glorious, beautiful salvation that's come to us to undeserved people. But then when it comes to them, guess what? We don't have anything to offer them. So grace is for us and love is for us, but grace and love for other people? No, thanks. That's for me. That's for my tribe, right? That's tribalism. Not for anybody else, Right? But when we begin to see the love that's been extended to us, when we see the grace and the mercy that's been extended to us, we can extend that same grace and mercy to others, just like the Good Samaritan did. So New City Church, stay in the city. Stay, don't run away, put down roots, build families, build businesses, build gardens. I know the garden one's a little bit more difficult, right? One of my dreams is to actually build a decent garden one day that actually has like stuff that comes up and, um, and then like get it in, in a, like a bowl and then like give it to a neighbor and then just be like, Jeremiah 29? No, I would never do that. No, I wouldn't do that. God said, here's my vegetables for you. No, I, that's cheesy. I got to work on that. But pray for the city. Pray for your neighbors. Find ways we can serve our city. And, and I'm so thankful to pastor this church in just the millions of ways that you guys do this so well. Just hot dog Saturdays, right? Just little ways we can, food pantry, right? The day-to-day realities when people are in need in our community, it's just like, hey, how can we help? How can we, you know, watch their kids? How can we give them money? How can we, right? I just, I, I love seeing that. Just keep doing that. Keep being motivated by the God who suffered outside the city for you. Seek the welfare and the peace of our city that we'd experience more of that.